Well, greetings in Jesus' name. Welcome to everyone here again. It's a joy again to be in the house of God and to consider the things of God. Well, thank you, Luke, for that inspiring um, message. Makes you want to go out there and fight, doesn't it? Amen. Lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet and go for it. It's good to hear uh, messages like that to inspire us and renew our courage, our hope, and strength for the battle. Well, as I was considering what the Lord would have me to preach this morning and considering what message you might need, it led me to a message here that it's not uh, particularly new. It's a doctrine that you have heard, but it's not one that's... uh, Real easy to preach, necessarily, and one that through time has uh, had a bit of controversy, I guess. But we're going to touch on it this morning, and I've entitled the message, God's Elect. I'd like for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and verse 33. So the title is God's Elect, and I'm going to be speaking about election and what the Bible tells us about that. And when I say this is not an easy message to preach, what I mean by that is that it is some of the deep things of God. This is not just a surface topic. It's not just something that you can grab a hold of in in one little meal, if you will. But it is foundational to our understanding of God, of who God is. So it is some of the deep things of God. So we're going to go deep this morning. And I trust... um, And believe that many of you will have the maturity to be able to absorb much of what I say. But it's not going to be just a simple one. I'm going to be looking at some of the main theme of three chapters in the book of Romans, which are chapters 9, 10, and 11. Now, we won't be able to cover nearly everything in those chapters, but there is somewhat of a common theme through those three chapters. And it has to do with Paul explaining what it means to be God's elect. And he uses some other terms there and some other principles, but this morning we want to draw out of those three chapters Uh, a bit of a definition and an understanding of what it means to be God's elect. And we have that expression here in chapter 8, in verse 33, it says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. 
And in a moment we'll read a bit more of the context there. But I'd like to say that the subject matter here is something very foundational to our faith and belief. Who are God's elect? Is that you? Now some would teach that it's just a select few, a few that we can't really know for certain whether or not they are elect, and perhaps you've struggled with those doubts. Can I be one of God's elect? And some would teach that God is selected from eternity past in an irrevocable way, who is elect and who is not, and that some people are born damned and some people are born elect, and that the elect will enjoy the blessings and benefits of God, and those who are not elect or passed over by God will never enjoy those things. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what the Scripture teaches. But we're going to look at that this morning. Who are God's elect? Now let's read a little larger context here. And I was not really intending to preach from Romans 8, but that's where we're going to start. So I will give you what comes just before chapters 9, 10, and 11, and we'll also touch on what comes right after that. But let's read here Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amazing passage of Scripture, and one that I hope many of you have committed to memory. A passage that you stand on, that you're assured of, And as Paul so eloquently says here, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lists all these possibilities. But in the end he says, no, none of those things can separate you from the love of Christ. And as I pondered what would be a good message to preach, I was considering the topic of God's love, the love that God has for us and its importance in the Christian life and walk. And I would say 
that that subject is one of the most essential ones for us to get a hold of, not just in theology and in our head, but in our heart. That God's love is the foundation upon which my faith stands. Now let me explain a bit. Our concept of who God is, and then because of that, our conception of God, we, we have a response, or we, we make life choices based on what we believe about God and how we see God. And the Apostle John made it very clear, he says, He that loveth not, knoweth not God. And then he says, why? Because God is love. That is so foundational on our understanding of who God is and his character and nature. God is love. And you've heard that many, many times. So the question, though, is, how does that apply to my daily life? How does it affect the way I live? Will it affect the way I live? The answer is yes. Our concept of whether God loves us. Let me just give you this illustration. I used it several weeks ago in a message on the remedy for discouragement. And we looked at the example of the children of Israel as they came to the promised land God had promised them they were at the border and they sent in these 12 spies who went in to search out the land. They came back with a report. And the key thing out of that is that the two men who had a good report, they said, if God be for us, let us go. And so the question comes, is God for them? The answer was yes. God was for them. The others came with this evil report, and you know what they said? Or actually the people's response after this uh, discouraging report, the people's response was, it's because God hated us that he's brought us here to this difficult place and expects us to overcome this enemy they are huge, they're giants, and we're only grasshoppers. Therefore, God must hate us. You see their conception of what God was and what his plan was affected tremendously where they came out on this issue. The one, the two men who on the one side said, if God be for us, well, let's go. Let's have faith. The others, discouraged, ready to turn. Uh, must be God hates us. You know, that is so foundational in how we approach life. The way we see God's love becomes the lens through which we live life and how we see things in life. So is it possible for you to be the elect of God. Now in the passage we read already in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And our heart says, yes, I love God. And so everything that I experience in life, I can trust. I love God. Things are going to work out for good. Well, that gets challenged, though. Do we really believe that? And will we have faith in the time of testing? And while verse 28 says, To them that love God, we know that we love God because He what? first loved us. Thank you. But think about how important that is. We love him because he first loved us. 
And then we begin to have a conception in our mind of what this love that God has for us and how it affects us in our everyday life. It begins, it, it really is the lens through which we see life. Well, then, down in our main text verse here, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And the word elect and election, there's, there are two different forms of the, of the same word. And it means to choose. And in some cases, it's so translated in our King James Version, choose. It means that God chose. He chose us. He chose you. There are chosen people of God. And that's what we want to look at today. Who are the chosen ones of God? Who is or who are God's elect? Now I might just note that at the end of these chapters that we want to look at, Paul goes on to say in chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. And I hope that you've committed that to memory. And I know you've heard many sermons preached out of this passage. But what I'd like to note is the words, therefore. I beseech you, therefore. Why? What is he talking about, therefore? Well, it's because of what he taught them in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And I'd also like to note the word mercies there, by the mercies of God. And Paul gives some clear instruction for the Christian life and an appeal to them to live godly because of what he had taught them before. God's elect. Now we're going to look at uh, things in these three chapters and I won't be able to read all of it would perhaps be helpful if we could, but I'm going to pick out uh, certain passages, certain portions here. Uh, not that we want to ignore or skip over any of it, uh, but simply we don't have time to cover everything. But there are, out of these three chapters, there are certain verses that we are more familiar with, and, and they're often used... And that's, that's good and right. That's not, no problem with that. But there are portions of it that are a little more difficult to understand and a little easier to just skip over because we're not quite sure what to make of them. Um, for example, in chapter 3, verse 13, As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That one's not that easy to explain, although we're going to try this morning. Verse 16, chapter 9. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And that's a good verse. What we want to focus on a bit this morning, especially the last phrase there, of God that showeth mercy. We're going to see in our study here that that is key in understanding this passage is that God is showing mercy. Now over in um, chapter 11, and we're kind of going to skip around here a bit. But I'm just picking out a few phrases here. Chapter 11. In verse 5 it says, Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant 
according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Now in verse 5, he uses the term election of grace, and we're going to make that a bit of a subtitle here. Election of grace. Are we part of that election of grace? Is that what God has promised for us? Well, let's... uh, Let's consider let's let's go to the first mention of the word elect in the scriptures. We find that in in Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter forty two, verse one. I'd like for you to turn there. We're going to read several verses. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, Mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. So there is the first use of the word elect. And I think all of you would recognize this passage is speaking of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is that servant whom God chose. Mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. Those were the very words that God used when he spoke out of heaven. He is delighted in him. He is pleased in him. I have put my spirit upon him. The Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of a dove, and the spirit was given unto him without measure, it tells us. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Now in our English usage of the word judgment, it has a bit of a negative connotation in that we think of someone on trial for some misdeed or crime, and judgment is to come. But in its usage here, it has more to do with the concept of bringing forth what is right. Or righteousness. He will bring forth righteousness even. He will will bring forth equity. That's another word that's used. Everything that's right, he he will bring it forth. To who? To the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. And that's very key. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. So, 
righteousness. He's going to go with him. He's going to bring forth judgment, equity, that which is right. And he's going to bring that forth and it's going to be for the Gentiles. Not just the Jews. But let's turn, um, it's over in Sorry, I didn't write this down. Two chapters, I think. I'm sorry, I should have had this. Oh, here it is, chapter 45, verse 4. This is the next usage of the word elect. Chapter 45, verse 4, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect. I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Now there, in this passage, we have specifically Israel, or Jacob and Israel can be used interchangeably there. Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect. So in the first usage, it's clearly speaking of Christ. In the second usage, is referring to Israel and calling him elect. And when he uses the term Israel there, he's referring to the people, not just only Israel as a man himself, as an individual, but all his posterity, those who were known as the children of Israel. They were God's servant, his elect. Now it's important for us to understand that there can be various applications of the term elect. We saw it applied specifically to Christ. It also applied to Israel, the servant of God. Now, if you would turn back to our main passage here in Romans chapter 9. And we're going to see as we go through chapters 9, 10, and 11, the central theme here is how God views his people. And he's going to talk about Israel. And he's going to talk about uh, what we would often call the Jews, but the, the people of Israel, his kinsmen after the flesh, and we're going to see how God dealt with them and how he views them. Not only then, but in time to come. He's also going to show us how God looks at the Gentiles. And how God grafted in the Gentiles. And so that is the context of these three chapters. How God looked at it in the Old Testament versus how he looks at it in the New. So let's note here in chapter 9, the first verses... I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So there is quite a list of all the things that pertain to the people of Israel, God's chosen people. And as you recall, Many times in the Old Testament, they were called the people of God. 
God called them out. He called them out of Egypt. He called them out to be a people for his name. He set them as a sign for the Gentiles. It was a demonstration of what God does with his people. They came through the wilderness and you know the story how they complained and God had them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then when they came to the land of promise and crossed over the Jordan River, they came to the city of Jericho and what did they find? They found the city straightly shut up and the people trembling inside. Why? Because they had heard that the God of Israel was with these people. They had heard of the exploits and they trembled because they knew that God was coming through his people. And God did. He won a mighty victory, miraculous victory, supernatural as a demonstration that God is with them. They are God's people. So now, Christ has come. And Paul is now referring back to his people, the Israelites, his kinsmen after the flesh. And he lists all these things, the adoption. Now in chapter 8 it talks about we have received through Christ the spirit of adoption. It didn't used to be that way. It used to be only for the children of Israel according to the flesh. But now it's open for us. Through the Spirit, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That has a term of endearment. It's, we call him our Father. Okay. It was through these people that Christ came. That was all foretold, and, and it was God's people with an intent that he would bring forth the Savior the one who would be the blessing promised to Abraham that in all in thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed that was fulfilled in Christ who came of the lineage of Abraham and David but there's a problem And Paul had great heaviness in his heart for his kinsmen. Why? Because they were missing it. In verse 6, Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Now how can that be? Well, he says here, Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Now what's he saying there? He says that even in the flesh, not all of them that were called Abraham's children were children of the promise. You see, he also had a son, named Ishmael. And that son was not the son of promise. The promise for those who were called his seed, the ones who received the promise, were the ones that were named as the children of promise. And then further, he goes on later to talk about Jacob and Esau. And he says, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. It was not the children of Esau who were children of the promise. It was the children of Jacob. So there he's talking about the children of God. The children of the promise were counted for the seed. So now we're, we're narrowing it down that not everyone who was a physical descendant of Abraham was counted as God's people. But there was a promise attached to it. 
Verse 11. For the children being not yet born, this is referring to uh, Jacob and Esau, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Now if we read this in isolation to the rest of the passage and don't consider the context here, it could make it sound like God is very arbitrary here. He chooses one, and he doesn't choose another, and Paul is making the argument here, it was before they had done either good or evil that the promise might come according to election or God's choosing. Remember that word election is God's choosing. Now I'll just say this, and it's not possible to bring in all the scriptures that pertain to some of these statements I'm making but I believe they are grounded in Scripture. If you go back and look at what was written about Jacob loved and Esau hated, you find that it was one of the prophets speaking many years after these, were, these sons were born, and he's referring to the people, not only Jacob or Esau as an individual, but he is saying that God chose the seed of Jacob and he rejected the seed of Esau. And why was that? Because Esau despised his birthright. Now if we look at all of the scriptures, we know that it wasn't required, or in other words, Esau was not forced to despise his birthright. He chose to. And God knew that beforehand. He knew which people he would choose. And he knew which people would be rejected. But the foreknowledge of God did not force them to make the choices that they did. God simply knew what choices they were going to make. And the argument Paul is making here is that God has his ways and his methods and it's not, a salvation does not come to us just because we willed. Okay? Let's, let's be very clear about that. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ. And it's offered to us as a free gift. And it's God that shows mercy to those who choose. Then he goes on to say in verse 17, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much longsuffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory? on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now note the ending we read here in verse 23. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. 
Who are the vessels of mercy? Paul says it's us. And who is us? Not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Because Paul was a Jew. So when he says us, he's referring to both his own descendants, but not on them only, but also the Gentiles. Us. Whom he hath called. Now we noted that word in chapter 8. It uses the term called. And who does God call? Well, we'll see that a little later. Verse 25. As he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Now in the Old Testament, all peoples could be divided into two groups. The Jews, which were the people of God, and all the rest. It was that simple. There were only those two. And they, all the rest were referred to as Gentiles. And the Gentiles had no hope and were without God in the world. God didn't choose them. He chose the Jews. They were his people. They were to represent who God is. Now it is interesting that even though the Gentiles had no hope and were without God in the world, yet there are examples throughout the Old Testament that people who were of the Gentiles became proselytes and joined themselves unto the children of Israel. You have the example when they left Egypt, a few of the Egyptians joined themselves to the children of Israel and became part. You have the example of Rahab, who by faith received the spies and actually became part of the lineage of Jesus Christ, even though she came from a Gentile nation. You have the example of Ruth, who chose to join herself to the people of God. Let your people be my people, and your God my God. And so, throughout time, there were people who could join themselves. The Queen of Sheba came to hear of the fame of Solomon. And her breath was taken away. She said, the half has not been told me of the glory. They were Gentiles. But yet, God gave provision for them to come in. Now, Paul is explaining that even according to the prophet Hosea, there will come a time when those who were not called God's people are going to be called the people of God. There it shall be said, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Verse 27, Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because his short work will the Lord make on the earth. Let's skip down to verse 30. What shall we say then? that the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Now that's quite a statement there. The Gentiles 
which he says followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. Now let's look over in chapter 11. Well, we're going to come back to this, but I want you to just look over in chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. He says, Even so, then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it, is it no more works? Otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Now I have a question. What was Israel seeking for? And they didn't attain it. And what was the election? What did the election obtain? What is he talking about? Israel, to whom pertained the adoption and the covenants and the promise and, the, and all those things, they didn't attain it. Why? And what was it that they didn't attain? But the election did attain it. What did they attain? Well, I believe what he's talking about is what we just read there in chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness. How could they attain to righteousness? Through Jesus Christ. What was it that Israel did not attain to? They did not attain to righteousness. And you could put in there salvation. He uses the term uh, saved. I think we'll look and see that. Uh, well, he uses that in several different places. But righteousness and salvation Israel did not attain to because they received it not by faith. Verse 32, Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. Chapter 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. There it is, saved. He desired that they be saved. Well, what is salvation? Well, he goes on to describe that and it's a portion that we're probably most familiar with out of these three chapters. But let's note what he says here. In verse 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And then he goes on. Now we're going to drop down. Verse 8, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And there you have it. 
the difference between being saved or not saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But you see the children after the flesh, Israel after the flesh, most of them did not call on the name of the Lord. They did not believe on him whom he had sent. They stumbled at that rock of stumbling and that stone of offense. They received it not by faith, Paul says, and that's why they did not attain. Israel did not attain. But this salvation is nigh thee. He says there, verse 8, what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. So in the Old Covenant, it was those of the lineage of Israel that could be called God's people. And those that were the rest, the Gentiles, they were without God, without hope. But now in Christ Jesus, he brings salvation that whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And whosoever by faith enters in to this is called, are called, the people of God. It's no more just those of a specific lineage, but the way has been opened for the Gentiles. Christ is the end of the law or the goal, um, not necessarily the extinction of the law, but it was the end to which the law was given, Christ was that fulfillment for righteousness to everyone that believeth. It would no more be enough to just keep the law as it was in the Old Testament, but now to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And then Paul goes on to say, How shall they call on him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe on him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? The word needs to go out. The gospel needs to be preached that people might hear and believe. Verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Oh my, I see we're running out of time. I'm only halfway through. <laughs> but we won't be able to finish. But I think we can get some conclusions here. The glorious promise is open to everyone. The call has gone out to the ends of the earth. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the called are the ones who become the elect if they choose to enter in. Let me just put another verse here. This comes uh, from chapter 5 of Romans, verse uh, 2. By whom, we're going to put in brackets here. Jesus Christ. We have access by faith, wherein we stand. and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now here he talked about the election of grace. You see that? And by whom, in Jesus Christ, we have access by faith. Oh, I missed a phrase. 
Okay. The most important phrase here, perhaps, for my point. Into this grace. Sorry, that kind of got messed up there, but by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So this election of grace, we have access to be part of the elect by faith into the grace wherein we stand. That's what gives us Standing. You know that's a uh, a legal term. If you go into a court of law and want to plead a case, they will ask you, "Do you have standing?" And the term means, "Do you have any right or claim to be making a case or argument on this issue?" And if you have no standing, they won't let you argue a case. You have to have a reason, a justification. You have to have a legal cause. Otherwise, you have no standing. Well, there's a little bit of that sense here. In this grace wherein we stand, how can we... I mean, it does have the idea, too, that we stand as opposed to falling, but it also has standing, meaning we have a legal right because we have entered by faith. And it's on this basis that we have access and stand. And we stand in this because we have access by faith. So back to the question. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. And what was, he, what was Israel seeking for? They wanted to be counted as the children of God. They wanted to be saved. They wanted to have salvation. They wanted to be in the, in the fold. But they didn't attain it because they sought it not by faith. But we, the election, have obtained it. And the rest were blinded. Well, God, uh, Paul here goes on to say, and let's note here in chapter 11, he's talking about an olive tree and saying that we were grafted in. Verse 17, if some of the branches be broken off and thou being a wild olive tree was grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spare not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. You see, faith is our standing into this hope, and into this um, election of grace. Well, I need to bring this to a close. My, there is so much more we could talk about, but I think I've covered the basics here. And as I said at the beginning, this is some of the deep things of God that I think most of you have maturity enough to grasp 
some of these core truths. But note what Paul says here at the conclusion of his this section, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And I will conclude with that.